William Shakespeare said, expectation is the root of all headache. Isn't that encouraging? Um, another person said, expectations are premeditated disappointments. In other words, if you don't have expectations, you're not going to be dis- disappointed. If we had no expectations, we would have no headaches. We'd have no disappointments. Yet, the world without expectations just doesn't exist. It's impossible to live in a world without expectations. And so is it, uh, is it possible to have healthier expectations? And I would say yes. All expectations are not equal, healthy, or realistic, but we can have healthier expectations. And that's the goal, for us to look at God's Word and to try to gain some understanding. Uh, Tara Parker Pope uh, mentioned um, her article last week uh, that she wrote talking about a happy marriage is a me marriage, which is the name of our series, the me marriage myth, the me marriage myth. She said, a lasting marriage does not always signal a happy marriage. Plenty of miserable couples have stayed together for children, religion, or other practical reasons. But for many couples, it's just not enough to stay together. They want a relationship that is meaningful and is satisfying. So the, the translation to um, Tara Parker Pope's um, presupposition here is that if your relationship is not meaningful and satisfying to both people, then maybe we should just walk away and find a new relationship that's meaningful and satisfying. Basically, that's what she's setting herself and other people up for, is the second that marriage doesn't deliver on the expectations that you have and that you are entitled to, then you walk away and you go find another marriage and you can figure it out. Which is really the whole, this isn't a message about dating, although there's some implications in dating we'll get into. But for those of you in the dating thing or raising kids, let me just go ahead and tell you, the parents drives me nuts that try to get their kids, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, and they're like, you know, they're still like third grade, okay? And, you know, do you love so-and-so? Do you want, yeah? And they're, they're trying to force that. And they get their identity from the fact that their little girl who's in seventh grade or sixth grade or fourth grade or 12th grade or whatever, um, has boys that like her and, and then the boy has girls that like and whatever, and they're trying to live vicariously through their child and they're setting them up for this cycle of dating and, and a heartbreak and the dating and then heartbreak and the dating and then heartbreak. All you're doing is setting them up for a continued cycle of divorce, of married, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce, marriage, divorce. Maybe we should think through a better way to do this that's not really healthy, but that is what Tara Parker Pope suggests. So I would ask you this, when's the last time you examine your expectations? Are, are your expectations healthy? Are they realistic? Are they biblical? You know, when we look at God's plan for marriage, we find that our expectations for fulfillment are not, honestly, they're not too high. They're really too low. They're really too low. They're just misplaced. God's plan for marriage is, for, is far beyond the cheap substitutes of Disney princess stories, reality TV, dating apps, and pornography. God's plan for men, for marriage is far better than the stuff that the world has tried to feed us and sell us and that we have wholeheartedly bought into too often. And so we want to spend some time in the Song of Solomon, tactfully and diplomatically nonetheless, but dealing with some of these things so that we can understand them better and have understanding of how we should inform our relationships. And again, regardless of what season you are in life, whether you are married or single or Whatever your circumstances are, whether you have been married, you've been divorced, you've been whatever, there's things for us to take away. There's things for us to apply. There's things for us to learn. And um, in this, all of this, marriage is a picture of our relationship with Christ. And so there's a spiritual element to this where we can learn some great things about our relationship with Jesus that is of utmost importance.
Examine your expectations. We don't need higher or lower expectations. We need healthy and articulated expectations. Our personal dreams for marriage seem so beautiful. This is Winston Smith. Our personal dreams for marriage seem so beautiful and convincing that we don't stop to consider that God's dreams for us may be different. Our personal dreams, man, in the world, man, they sell them good. There's music playing in the background. I mean, they're just multi-sensory. They're amazing. And we don't stop to go, maybe this isn't really reality. Maybe this is just a facade. Neil Warren, or Neil Clark Warren, eHarmony guy, he said, physical attraction combined with a fairy tale kind of hope won't provide the kind of foundation that a marriage these days almost always requires. And then Brad Hambrick said, you will be married to at least a dozen people over the course of one marriage. We'll just make it clear, a dozen different people over the course of one marriage. The reality is we change, we change, we grow, we transition. So how do we navigate the changes in life and all those things? Let me give you some other insights. Um, and, and this is going to be some raw stuff. And, and I, I hesitate to say some of this stuff because of the different ages in here. But quite frankly, according to statistics, I don't think it really matters uh, when the average, most kids are exposed to pornography by the age of 11 years old. And, um, and that trend is going down. That was actually several years ago. Um, so that's the starting point for most kids. There is an article recently in, uh, based upon some research that's been done. The research is called Singles in America Study, published, uh, and it was published in several articles, but one in USA Today this past week called Sleeping Together Before a First Date is Okay, But Crack Phones Are a Put-Off. It's the title of the article. Sleeping with somebody for the first date, crack phones or turn off. This study, which is based its results on 5,500 single people surveyed last year, almost also found that 57% of millennials feel lonely. 57% of millennials feel lonely even though they're 125% more likely to admit they're addicted to finding true love versus other generations. So millennials are in hot pursuit of True love, which we, I would argue is somewhat of a myth based on what they're trying to, the expectations that they have that aren't healthy, and yet 57% of them feel lonely. While the rule of thumb may have been to wait to be physically intimate until a third date, which, which is a whole other question. Who made that rule of thumb? That, you know, with a third date, then things you can, you know, mm, yeah, all right, but uh, first date, no. Um, you shouldn't, that's really inappropriate. Well, who, who made that one? Um, that's question number one. But, but moving beyond that, now, rule of thumb may have been to wait till a third date. 34% of singles have had sex before a first date, before, let me say, <clears throat> before a first date, and millennials are 48% more likely to be physically intimate before a first date than other generations of singles. Those surveyed also noted how they are turned off by old cracked phones. In other words, those of you guys that have cracked phones and you're waiting to get your, until you're, you know, you get past your one year thing or whatever until your contract's up till you upgrade your phone, it's put off. So if you're going to go on a date, you got a cracked phone, you really need to upgrade that first before you go on that date. That's really important. And when, the, when their date answers a text or more importantly, a phone call during their date, that's a major no-no, which is hilarious because they're all obsessed to their devices. But yet if you answer it on a date, that is a really bad deal according to this survey. Uh, somebody once said, falling in love is easier than knowing what to do once you get there. And isn't that true? 
Isn't that true? Falling in love, for that matter, getting married is easier than knowing what to do when you get there. And again, we don't have any answers from the world. So at what point are we going to stop and open the Bible and go, you know what, maybe there's some stuff in here that might address this. And shockingly, there's a book in the Bible called Song of Solomon that young people weren't even allowed to read. Young men couldn't read it until they were going to get married or until their wedding day. Okay, so that's how cultures change. I was talking to my boys about how much things have changed. And uh, we, we, we watched... Uh, well, Angry Birds, I'll say it. Angry Birds um, yesterday rented out as a family. And uh, unbelievable, the innuendos in this goofy movie based upon an app. It's a little game. And there's unbelievable sexual innuendos throughout the whole uh, movie. And, you know, and, and then again, years ago, I'm telling about there's this movie called I Love, or this show called I Love Lucy. You ever seen it? Yeah, Redhead? Okay, you know, Lucy. Um, I love Ricky because he's a play bongos percussionist. I appreciate that about him. And, and yet, they, you know, and when that thing came out, they slept in separate beds because it was too provocative. It was provocative enough. They pushed the envelope by, envelope by having them in the same room, even though they were in separate beds. And now we've got cartoons that have uh, sexual innuendos through every scene. It is crazy how the world has changed. But we want to look to some ancient wisdom in Song of Solomon to see if we can gain some insight. Traditionally, books described to have been written by uh, Solomon, likely written during his uh, earlier part of his life, mentions him authoring over 1 Kings chapter 4, mentions that Solomon wrote over uh, 1,005 songs, which would say that he would be uniquely qualified to write a song or poem about love and this, this love message. Some observations about the book. God is never mentioned directly in the book, nor are any rel- major religious uh, words in this book. And so it's caused some to kind of contest it through the years, um, because of the fact that some of those things aren't in there, because of the absence of the name of God, although chapter 8, verse 6 kind of has an implication that God's speaking, um, because of its frank language regarding physical intimacy, and because of uh, the difficulty to interpret it, um, through the years, to be godly was to be single and to be a monk or a nun. Godliness was certainly not connected to a faithful, God-honoring marriage and Um, finding pleasure and enjoyment within that marriage bed was certainly not something that would ever have been talked about. And so uh, they did not know what to do with this book. So there's three different ways people have interpreted through the years. One is as a historical, allegorical story between God and his love, his bride, Israel. And that's kind of an Old Testament historical view. And so Song of Solomon was read by Jews during the 8th day of Passover. It was likely read as a historical allegory beginning with Exodus and ending with the coming of the Messiah, coming to get his bride. And then from a Christian perspective, we just, you know, baptized it, put Jesus in the church. Uh, So Christ in the church. Origen was one of the first post-apostle leaders of the church. He was castrated. He castrated himself, by the way, um, to to be focused and more wholly devoted to the Lord. Um, That's one way to, you know, if your right hand sins, cut it off. Your right eye sins, poke it out, um, you know, he didn't have as much of a problem with temptation. Jerome would throw himself into a sticker bush whenever he had an impure thought. The reformers, after the Reformation, they began to change some things. Their view of interpreting scripture and on marriage um, began to change, but still struggled to know what to do with this book because they saw marriage as a good thing and that, um, that priests or pastor leaders in church should get married to model healthy marriages and that they found evidence for that in the Bible, but still weren't exactly always sure what to do with this book. The other way of interpreting it is literal. 
poetic literature, and so it's poetic language that's given, and it has some practical insight for us, although there are spiritual implications as we see in Ephesians chapter 5, that marriage is a mystery, that this mystery is great as he talks about marriage, and he says Christ in the church. So undoubtedly, understand this, marriage is temporal. Your relationship with Jesus, or the lack thereof, is eternal. The implications of what you do with Jesus has eternal effects for the rest of your life, okay? In, once you go to heaven, there's no giving uh, or receiving of marriage, okay? Uh, that was brought to Jesus as a question during his ministry. And so understand that when we get to heaven, um, it's not that we're going to like ignore our spouses or uh, we're not going to love them, and what, but, but everything that we know on this side of eternity that we enjoy that's good uh, is going to be raised to an infinitely higher key of enjoyment, satisfaction, pleasure, and that we're going to find in Christ in ways that just blow up. So everything that you enjoy in this lifetime, you say, this is really a good thing. You receive that as a good gift from the giver of all good gifts and be thankful for that, but understand that it is not heaven on earth. Okay, heaven is heaven, and we cannot turn this fallen world into a five-star resort with room service. It ain't going to happen that way. It's just not going to work that way. And so though we should try to redeem something, you know that Jesus is helping us redeem some things on this earth to give us a taste of what is ultimate. Whatever we taste on this earth is never ultimate. And so understand that as a backdrop to this. And so there's two great truths that we gain from Song of Solomon. The first one, this is God's perfect plan for intimacy between a man and a woman. In fact, it's almost, if we look at the fall being paradise lost, they had paradise, they had the Garden of Eden, they sinned, and paradise was lost. And we talked about that last week. Sin entered into the equation, and marriages from that point forward are always dysfunctional one way or another because of our fallen sinful natures. In fact, God has intended marriage to be a place to slowly conform us into the image of Jesus and to change us. It's a great environment in the family for us to realize our need for Christ even more deeply. But nonetheless, uh, we can experience a uh, level of intimacy and, and, um, of between a man and a woman that, that gives us a taste of the Garden of Eden and what God intended before the fall. And God is in the process of restoring things. And so there, there's some uh, enjoyment to be had there. Number two, God's, this is also a picture of God's relentless and passionate love for his children. Those aren't disconnected, they're connected. Okay, and so marriage, a healthy marriage can leverage us, and for that matter, an unhealthy marriage can drive us to our dependency upon Christ also, but it can leverage um, a, an opportunity for us to have a greater understanding of God's relentless, passionate love for us. Three other uh, sub-truths in this, the foundation that, that the book teaches, and the first one is the foundation of love is mutual satisfaction. Foundation of love is mutual satisfaction. We find rest in our spouse on all levels, emotional, physical, spiritual, intellectual. And God, likewise, he satisfies our hearts uh, in our mates, and he, does, uh, he satisfies our hearts directly, but he, he can satisfy us in ways through the gift of our spouses in a way that uh, teaches us some great things. He is holistically loving us, and he gives us our spouse as a holistic gift that is meeting areas, is intended to meet areas in all those satisfaction, all of those different areas, although it's not without a lot of work, nonetheless. It's number two, mutual satisfaction is not only complementary, but it is also exclusive. We, we complement each other 
you know, providing mutual satisfaction, but it's also exclusive. True satisfaction demands a commitment to exclusivity. In other words, that's why we say forsaking all others in this commitment. It, that's got to be foundational. And then thirdly, love is probably the strongest human ocean in human life. You cannot buy it. You cannot demand it. You cannot force it. True love must be cultivated. True love must be cultivated. When mutual satisfaction breaks down, so will the marriage. And if you want to experience mutual satisfaction, if you want to, then you have to fight for exclusivity in your love and you have to cultivate the marriage to ever get there. Never has a marriage ever had mutual satisfaction that did not have cultivation or exclusivity. Those are critical elements of a healthy, God-honoring, satisfying marriage. So if look with me in Song of Solomon chapter 1. Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And notice in many of your Bibles it says the bride confesses her love. And so uh, let me, before I even get any further into the book, uh, let, me, let me note here there's, there's four different uh, groups in this or, or uh, actors, actresses in this, in this poem, uh, this drama. There's the Shulamite woman. There's Solomon, the king. The Shulamite woman, we don't know her name. She's just called the Shulamite or the Shulamite woman. And um, that's his bride. And then there is the, uh, the daughters of, uh, of Jerusalem or the, the crowd that also participates. And they have some songs at different points in this. And then God actually has a moment where he blesses the bride in their marital unity. Um, and, and so there's, that's the four different groups. And so this begins with, um, with her talking. She is talking. And she says this in verse 2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run to the king. The king has brought me into his chambers. And then the others pipe in. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And she responds, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the, the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me, and they made me keeper of the vineyard, vineyards. But my own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? And then he responds, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow in the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments your neck with strings of jewels. And then the audience pipes in. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And she responds, While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. 
Behold, you are beautiful, he says, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. So in that verse, uh, in these, this first chapter, raises a lot of questions. Are they married? Are they dating? Are they courting? What's going on there? Well, again, dating is a foreign concept we don't find in the Bible. But uh, there's applications to be made here to say, and I've taught this Song of Solomon multiple times, uh, mostly to singles, and which is a lot easier to be honest. And um, I would treat this as, um, as ultimately this is their kind of in courtship moving towards marriage. And you can kind of see things crescendoing into the second, third chapters. Um, and if you look at that way, sometimes you can see it as they're, they're reflecting back upon their courtship. And so they're going back and forth between their courtship to present day during their marriage. And so they're going back and forth. Um, there's applications to be made for singles there. There's applications to be made if you're married. Some others interpret this as the whole passage is about them being married but reflecting onto some moments of their courtship. But jumping into this, so this is a side note and kind of a, a, free, a freebie for you to think about. But uh, first of all, the, the first, second verse there, let his kiss, let him kiss me with kisses of my mouth for your love is better than wine. Uh, incidentally, three things about kissing. You'd really appreciate to know this. Uh, number one, it helps with, um, it's, it's an indicator of a healthy relationship. Uh, number two, it builds your immune system, okay? Um, helps you in fighting off the common cold. And then number three, it burns two calories. I don't know if it's per kiss or per incident, or I'm not sure exactly how to measure that. But, um, but anyways, for those of you that haven't, that if you've fallen off the wagon on your New Year's resolution to get in shape, you know, you can think about that. But um, anyways, moving along. So verse two, the, jumping into this first section, it's going to give us some traits that she describes the, the Solomon. We're going to call him the bachelor. Okay, and then we're going to look at some descriptions of the bachelorette. And so if we look at expectations on marriage, uh, for the singles, what are you looking for in a spouse? Uh, for parents, what do you want your kids to be thinking about in terms of, and what are you developing and cultivating in them for our marriages? Uh, let me say this, for all of us, okay? Uh, if, if you want, for the men, let me speak to you. If you want the right kind of girl, if you're single, gal, um, you want the right kind of girl, then you need to focus not on trying to find her, but on trying to be the right kind of guy. Husbands, if you want the right, perfect, whatever wife, okay, then focus on being the perfect husband and vice versa, okay? If, if wives, if you want your husband to be the perfect husband, stop trying to make him that and just you worry about being the perfect wife and allow God to change him and, and deal with with him. You just submit yourself to the Lord, trust God with that. And same thing, single ladies, okay, if you're looking for the right kind of guy, then be the right kind of girl and focus on that. Put your energy into cultivating and, and allowing God to change you and to fashion you into who he wants you to be. And so the bride's confessing her love to him and, and, and she shares some things about him. Let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. Verse three, your anointing oils are fragrant. So for, first of all, um, he smells good. That's practical. He smells good. I saw five ladies elbow their husbands. I'm just kidding. I didn't see that, but it would be funny if they did. And, and that's beyond that, but, um, but there's some practical thoughts there. Um, he's fragrant, okay? And, and maybe let's, you can make that um, allegorical if you want, um, or maybe it just does smell good. I, maybe that means he just picks up his clothes and, you know, um, his dirty clothes and puts them in the you know, laundry basket. I don't know, but, um, but he, your anointing oils are fragrant. And he goes on to say, that your name is oil poured out. Not only does he uh, smell good, he, he's putting out some good vibes, okay? And so his name, your name then represents your character, your integrity. 
So your name is oil poured out, therefore virgins love you. The, the ladies love him, respect him, look at him, and that's not an inappropriate um, adoration, but an appropriate adoration. He's elevated as being somebody to look to that has character and integrity and a life worth modeling or pursuing or the kind of guy that they would all um, want to have. That's, the, that's how he uh, lives, the character that he lives his life with. Many problems in a relationship, a result of, of a wife not respecting the character of their husband. And many problems are the result of the husband not having godly character. So there's two issues there. Men need respect, but are they worthy of respect? That's a critical thing to ask as we examine ourselves and how we're doing regarding these things. Draw me after you. Let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Maybe some would argue it'd be better to translate that. May the king bring me into his chambers. In other words, she wants to pursue him and she wants to run after him and she wants to know him more fully because of his character, because of the way he, um, his presence, all of those things exudes um, a, a man that she is attracted to because he is godly and of uh, integrity and, and character. And so the third issue that brings up uh, when we look at the bachelor is his reputation. His reputation. What do people think of him? What do people think of you? What if, men, what do people think of you? What's your reputation among other men? In, in fact, this is a question for both genders, but do you have friends of the same gender? Do you have friends of the same gender? Do you have, I mean, not just super fresh official friends, but I mean, that's a concern when ladies are unable to have legitimate relationships and friendships with other ladies. Why is that? And there's, when you look a little more deeply, there's, there's, there can be a lot of reasons, not necessarily all bad, but often when you're unable to have good relationships with other people of your same uh, gender, there's a lack of health, there's an insecurity, there's a competitiveness, there's a pride, there's, an, there's things below the surface, there's, a, there's an unwillingness to be humble and honest. And so this, he's a guy that has integrity, has character, and people want to be with him, and he has a good reputation. Be careful not to live for the approval of the crowd to the neglect of your home. Many a man had a great reputation in the, in the uh, community and a horrible reputation with his family. Many of you have dads that were that way. Everybody respected. My dad was respected. Everybody just, he was just a great man. He would give you the shirt off his back, and yet he would neglect his family and their needs. What kind of pastor am I if I pastor a church well, but I don't pastor my family well? Then I don't deserve to be up here. In fact, uh, there's more um, information in the qualifications of pastors on the way that they pastor their family than there is on how they deliver a sermon. The character and the integrity of the way we live our lives is far more important about what happens at home than what happens out in public. And so he has a, a, a character about him, a, a vibe about him, a reputation that is, uh, is notable. Character is a better predictor of marital satisfaction than compatibility. You want to know if you're compatible? Well, I've got news for you. Character is a far more important predictor of the satisfaction that you're going to have in, a, in your marriage than your perceived compatibility. And so the application, and so if you write nothing else down, you need to write this statement down because you have homework. I forgot to tell you, you have homework. Okay, so write this down. Uh, you can put it in the front of your Bible, on your hand, or on the note sheet that you have been provided. Here's the application. Tonight, you need to ask your spouse, men specifically, you need to ask your wives, uh, you can ask your family for that matter, how is, truthfully, how, permission to speak, how is my character and reputation? 
What, what am I not seeing? None of us can see our own face. And so none of us can see our character. But how is our character and how is our reputation? Um, how, how is it uh, to, to your family and to other people? Is it the same inside the home and outside the home? And that could be uncomfortable, but it will be a great step forward in having a God-honoring marriage and maybe healing some things that need to be healed in your home. But application, sometime today you need to ask that question. How is, and that, you, wives, you can ask your husband the same thing about you. But most importantly, men, you need to ask that to your wives. Um, ask them and be open and do not correct them or solve the problem. Just listen. Just listen. Take your beating like a man, okay? And just listen and just say thank you and then go have a quiet time, okay? So then the others say, they affirm his, uh, the, the character, uh, the community confirms his character's faithfulness. We will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then we get to the bachelorette. And so the bachelorette, what's the traits of the bachelorette? Well, first of all, there's diligence. She is a diligent young lady. I am very dark, but I am lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. I like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept she was a hard worker. She was not spoiled. She wasn't a spoiled little daddy's girl, um, but she was protected. Her brothers lovingly, and we don't know what's up with the husband or her father, but evidently he doesn't seem to be there. He's not involved in this. And so, but nonetheless, her brothers stepped in and they protected her, but they didn't spoil her. And so she was part of the family and she worked and she had roles and responsibilities and she wasn't, you know, I'm not sure what it is about our culture that tells women that they deserve to be pampered and lauded over and, you know, to get the princess treatment all of the time and, and not, you know, have some skin in the game and, and, and know that there's going to be some bumps and bruises and scars and challenges. Okay, but you guys are being fed constantly. And I'm not, I know that I'm not speaking to anybody in this room, but with the lie from people on the outside that you see on Facebook and other places out there, Instagram photos, whatever, and, and they live this pampered life. I just need a little me time. I just need a little this. I need a little time for myself. I need a little time. Not that you don't need healthy balances in your life and you don't need some time where you rest and you're rejuvenated. I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen. But I am saying that um, if you're going to be married and you're going to have kids, um, it's going to be difficult. It's just going to be hard work. It's a season. It's not forever. Many have said that the days are long, but the years are fast. But nonetheless, uh, maybe me time isn't going to come this month. Maybe it's going to be next month. You work that out with your spouse. You talk through the fact that you have healthy, you need some space, you need time to be able to be refreshed and to be the best wife that you could be, the best mom you could be. Certainly, I'm not saying that's not a problem, but I am saying we do need to stop and say, am I a little, do, do I have some entitlement issues? Maybe that's the simplest way to put it. Do I have some entitlement issues? And I think that we have done a horrible job at raising our kids without entitlement issues. We create entitlement issues. We give them everything they want when they cry, when they pout, when they, and daddy's little girl daddy's is not somebody that somebody else wants to marry, Okay. Because she's got entitlement issues, Dad. Thanks a lot um, to your, from your future son-in-law. Um, so you're creating a disappointment for her marriage. Teach her character. You know, cherish her. Protect her. Take care of her. 
rescue her. Oh, that's not bad. It's good. But you've got to have that in a, in a God-honoring balance. So uh, we, we see that she's diligent. We also see her inner beauty. That she has character. She has integrity. And then in her inner beauty, what makes her so beautiful on the outside is the fact that she's beautiful on the inside. That's what leads her, um, her beauty. There, there are some, I, I could get in trouble for saying this, but there are some ladies I understand out there, theoretically, okay, that, that you, they might just roll out of bed and they're just drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, they're just beautiful. But, but most often, the images that the world presents of the perfect girl, okay, first of all, there's a whole lot of makeup and hair and time and exercise and other things and diet and anorexia and other things. And then on top of all that, you add Photoshop to get the perfect girl, okay? And the fact of the matter is they look spectacular, but they're disgustingly, reprehensibly ugly on the inside because they spend all their time Photoshopping their face and no time thinking about their heart. And again, as we raise our little girls, um, ladies, as you, as you grow in being the woman that God has called you to be, it's not about not ignoring outer beauty. That's not, that's not relevant. God has created men to be visually oriented. By all means, we'll get there in a second, but that's relevant. But it, true visual beauty begins on the inner, on the inside. Spend your time there. Okay, spend your time there and then let that overflow into the outward beauty. But then in outer beauty, she says, I am dark. I don't, in other words, she says, I don't look like the cultural standard of beauty. I'm dark. In other words, she's out in the sun. She's sunburned because she works in the vineyards. And so she doesn't have light, fair skin like the other daughters of Jerusalem whose daddies take care of them and they don't have to work in the vineyards. But she has to work in the vineyards. And so she, her skin doesn't look, she has, maybe her hands aren't as soft, a little calloused and because she works hard, and yet that makes her more attractive. Uh, but that does render a question. It's interesting as she looks at herself. There's three things. Um, these are side points I don't have up here. Um, interview out of beauty. Out of beauty. Uh, that, that she, on one side, she's delighted in her appearance. She says of herself, um, I am dark, but I am lovely. So she looks at herself and she recognizes that I, I'm, I'm lovely. I'm, there's beauty there. But then she's also, she's delighted in her appearance, but she's also defensive about her appearance. Because not only she's, she's beauty, but then she says, well, don't look at me. Don't look at me. I mean, husbands, have you been there? Your wife, does this look good? I mean, you look beautiful. No, I don't. You know I don't look beautiful. I, I, my picture looks horrible. That way, you know, they're always, they, even though they, you know, you really do look beautiful. You, you really, no, I don't, no. So there's, they're delighted in her beauty, but then they're also defensive of her beauty. And then they're also disappointed. She was disappointed in her beauty. She goes on to, to say, my sons, my mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I haven't taken care of. The vineyard refers to her beauty, her sexuality, all of that. And she's saying, I really haven't spent time on the outer beauty like I wish I would have. Um, and, and so there's this tension there of insecurity, which is why a godly wise husband steps in to affirm that beauty, to encourage that beauty, to make them feel beautiful and attractive and help them see their beauty, to encourage the inner beauty to flow and to pour out into the outer beauty and to, to, to foster all of that together. But then the application. Well, let me give you one more thought. She's also looking for love in the right places. She's looking for love in the right places. Uh, he, she asked the question, tell me whom my soul loves. Where do I pasture? Where do you pasture your flocks? 
Where you make them? Where do you make them lie down at noon? For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? In other words, why should I be there chasing after you and chasing after men like the other ladies? I want to know you. I want to. Uh, I want to be closer to you. I want to spend more time with you. But I want to do that in an appropriate way instead of running after. A lot of people, singles, you're looking for love. You're not going to find it on a Tinder app. Okay, you're not going to find it in. Intimacy before the first date. It ain't going to work, okay? You're, you're not going to find it running to places where... Go to places where um, other believers are at. And again, this isn't totally for... But let me give you a little single application here. Uh, and then this is something good to tell your kids too. So this is a parental uh, application too. But here's what I always encourage young couples. As a college pastor for 11 years, 20-something pastor, did a lot of weddings. Helped a lot of couples get together, a lot of matchmaking. And, um, and in the process of that, one of the things that... that I've found true and have tried to encourage is, is you focus on your relationship with Jesus and living for Jesus' glory and walking with Jesus and getting to the point where you're content with Jesus and singleness. If that's what God has for you, you might not like it, you might not love it, but you would be content in it because Jesus is enough and he is your savior and you're not looking to a dude to be your functional savior and the same truth is true for the guys. Jesus is your Savior, and you're good there. Again, you might, I'm not saying you have the gift of singleness, as Paul calls it, but I'm just saying you get to the point where you're, you're, you, really, you know by God's grace you'd be fine, and you're not going to compromise. And then, once you're at that point, you're walking with Jesus, you're living for his glory, you're knowing Jesus, you're being changed by Jesus, you're on mission with Jesus, living, serving his church, reaching out to the community, ministering, you're, you're living a missional life, Look to your right and your left every once in a while and see if there's anybody of the opposite sex that is uh, running with you. And if you see somebody else that's running, guys, you look to the right and you see, oh, there's a girl, and, you know, I, I'm a digger, I like the person, I mean, what kind of, you know, and, and she seems sweet and, you know, you spend a little time and you're, you're running next to each other and things are good there. Then, and, and then say, you know, why don't we run together for the rest of our lives? Okay. What are you doing for the next, I don't know, 65 years? Uh, Nothing. What do you do? Well, let's just get married. Okay. And then run together in faithfulness. Now, if you spend a little time together and uh, he or she starts to drop back, let them go. If they start to run ahead of you, let them go or catch up. But look to the right, look to the left, see who's running with you. And then uh, that's where you go looking for the right person. And that's where you go trying to find, instead of being one, one who veils herself, looking after the shepherds, trying to find, um, hanging out with the flocks of his companions. So, uh, but here's the tension for, um, for, 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 for women today. The more immodest our culture is becoming, it is increasingly difficult for godly women and godly wives to be attractive for their husband without being attracting to other men. You know, it, it's really difficult for ladies to be attractive and not to be inappropriate in their beauty. And there's a tension there because the standards of what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and what we wear and how we dress and all those things are, seems to be constantly changing and they're never trending towards modesty. Okay, they're always trending away from modesty. And so that's a difficult tension there. And I don't know that we can get hard, fast guidelines, um, you know, that you're supposed to wear a hijab or that you're supposed to have your head covering all the time um, or you're supposed to, I'm not saying that, the Bible's saying that. It does clearly make, say that ladies should be looking like ladies and men should look like men. That's clearly a principle in scripture. But uh, beyond that, um, how do you find the balance in that? And so here's the application 
question for, uh, for ladies uh, to ask their husbands. And this goes, again, both ways. But how can I best remain attractive? And again, understand attractive is not just outer beauty. It's also inner beauty. But how can I do a better job? How can I take steps towards being more attractive to you? And then, ladies, please don't get your feelings hurt or upset or defensive or just listen. And again, you, like your husband, go have a quiet time. Just listen. And then, then, you know, and then ask God to help shape. And he might be completely off his rocker or whatever. But you just submit that to the Lord and then pray through that. Understand this, ladies. Your husband is being, he is visually oriented. And he is being bombarded daily by images of the culture that are telling him, um, look at me, look at me, look at me, and buy my product. Look at me, look at me, look at me, and buy this. And, and trying to lure his heart and his, his eyes away. And so it would be wise for you to fight, to join him in the battle, and to give him some redeeming images, presenting him a standard. Again, husbands, your wife is your standard of beauty. Wives, your husband is your standard of studliness. But that would be a way we can fight against the allurement of the world's lies. The last few things in this passage... Verse 8, if you do not know, O most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flocks and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. And so he, uh, he praises her by calling her most beautiful among women. Most beautiful among women. So learn to praise. Learn to praise your spouse. Learn to compliment your spouse, husbands and wives. This goes both ways. Learn to be a person of praise. Be an encourager. To them, they got plenty of discouragement. Let the home be the place that they get the most encouragement. Know that they're the husband's wife, your spouse. There's the world is always looking for ways to encourage, and there's always the enemy loves to throw people in your path that are gonna they're gonna make you feel ways that your husband doesn't make you feel, or your wife doesn't make you feel, and, and that's that is allurement of the devil, and you better run like like Joseph did in Genesis, flee from that. But learn to praise. Uh, secondly, set your priorities. Follow the tracks of the flock. Pasture your young goats, young goats beside the shepherd's tent. So he makes room for her in her life. And, and so he says, this is where you can go. And so there's space. Sometimes you just need to schedule an appointment for your wife or wife, for your husband. Just, you know, I, we're going to have lunch. I got a, I got a lunch appointment I got to run to. And, and it's your spouse. Okay? It's all right. You don't have to apologize for that. that. Make room in your lives for one another. Set your priorities. Make sure there's space. And then terms of endearment. Nicknames are not bad. I mean, there can be bad nicknames, I suppose, but be, you know, have a good nickname. I compare you, my love, to a mare among the Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely and with ornaments and your neck with strings of jewels. Now, there's a lot behind this, but let me just say simply that um, among the chariots, horses, I mean, the Pharaoh's chariots, which you have a whole lot of stallions that are, that are just um, you know, strong, fast, mighty horses, and then when you throw, so if you're in war and you have stallions running with the chariots and then they're to send a, a mare that is in heat through the stallions, there's going to be a distraction, let's just say. And that was something that would often happen in war. That was a way that they would kind of fight back against the Pharaoh's chariots. And so though many believe that's really what he's saying. is He's saying that, man, you are, a, you are alluring and attractive and beautiful to me. And so there's a nickname there, uh, my love, a mare among the, and I, again, calling your wife a horse, I don't know. It probably won't work. It might not work for you, but whatever. You come up with your culturally appropriate nicknames um, as long as they're edifying and encouraging. But again, you might not want to, you know, you just, um, you supply your family with everything it needs. You're just like a good heifer. It won't work. Don't do that. <laughs>
Last couple thoughts is uh, find good friends. Surround yourself with some good friends that support and do not sabotage your marriage. That support and do not sabotage. Uh, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but I'm going to say it. Um, when you get married, okay, uh, men, your best friend doesn't, is not going to be other women. Close friends are not going to be other women. And um, husbands, when you get married, um, or, I'm sorry, wives, your, your, your good close friends are not going to be other men. And that changes. When you get married, there's an exclusivity in your love. And you better protect your marriage. We'll get into that a little more in the weeks to come, but let me just make that clear. And so, but you still need good friends, but the friends need to be um, couples, other couples and friends that are supporting and not trying to sabotage your marriage. Friends that support the relationship. And so they come beside and they say, hey, we're going to make you ornaments of gold. We're going to celebrate. We're going to get fired up. We're going to help you with a shower for your wedding and we're getting you ready for the wedding. Then she says, while the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Again, there's, there's continuing to be affection and love and desire is continuing to build. And the last thing I want to end with, and we're going to transition, believe it or not, into the Lord's Supper with this because there's a great truth in this, is verse 14. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. What is Engedi? Engedi. Engedi was an oasis of abundant water in the middle of a dry and desolate western bank of the Dead Sea. It had a waterfall. It had a stream. It was hidden and therefore romantic, a location that would have had obvious appeal. And God intends that our marriages would be just that. They would be in Gettys in desert places, in dark and desolate lands with waterfalls and streams that are hidden and romantic that would have obvious appeal. He desires that. He calls us to have that. And so the third application question that you need to discuss today or tonight with your spouse is how can I be your Engedi? How can I be and create the space? How can I create a space for you that is an Engedi? And, and it's not always physical intimacy that's going to be the issue here. That might be a factor, but it's not going to be the whole thing. And so how do I do that? So husbands, ask your wife. Wives, ask your husbands. How can I create an Engedi for you? A place where you want to go home, come to home to. A place where you want to, to flee for rescue from the allurement, the craziness, and the destruction, and the discouragement of the world. How can we make our home an Engedi? What would that look like? That's the application question, the third application question. But let me transition a step beyond that. You can't perf- you'll never be able to provide a perfect Engedi for your spouse or any other person. But I want you to understand that Christ has provided an Engedi for all of us. And that's the beauty of marriage, that's the beauty of this book, is there's incredible practical truths. I hope you've seen that already. But yet there's a spiritual dynamic that you cannot pull out of this, and that Christ, regardless of where you're at, regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of what's going on in your marital status, or your age, or whatever, that first and foremost, if you're going to have a healthy marriage, you need to have a healthy relationship with Jesus. And that begins by recognizing that Jesus has paid the price to purchase, to secure and to restore an environment that's safe and secure, where you don't have to labor to find, uh, to, to please somebody, where you don't have to labor to perform to be loved, where you are loved 
just the way you are. And He's cultivating you and making you into the person He desires you to be with His Holy Spirit. And His presence is there with you as He passionately, diligently pursues you and loves you. And that, that stream that flows through this and Getty really didn't begin with water, but it began with His blood and His body. His body being broken for you and His blood being shed for you. And so Christ has provided for us an Engedi. He has provided for us a place where we can go to find rest and to find rescue. Mm-hmm.